Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. You may be seated this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 this morning. While you're turning there, just uh, as a reminder, uh, Casey mentioned next Sunday, we're excited to just have some fun time of fellowship, uh, eating some, some flapjacks and wearing our flannel shirts. I saw Cameron this morning and I said, Cameron, I said, flannel Sunday's not till next week. He said, I'm a walking billboard. <laughs> and I said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Uh, so we're excited about that. It's a great opportunity to invite some friends, neighbors, uh, coworkers uh, to come and enjoy uh, just some time of uh, fellowship and fun as we also open God's word and, and worship him next week. So uh, make sure you do that. Also, we want to uh, just continue uh, to be a people of prayer uh, in regard to the situation uh, happening in Israel and just praying that God uh, would, would just intervene there. Uh, so let's just bow our heads real quick if we could and uh, just pray for that situation. Father, we uh, come before you again this morning, acknowledging uh, your sovereignty, acknowledging your power, acknowledging your might. God, we also acknowledge uh, your, um, your promise, and your promise is good. And Lord, we know that it will be fulfilled. And Lord, we know that um, you are uh, so good. We thank you for that. Lord, we also understand that you allow things to happen that we don't understand. But God, we rest in you. And so right now, Lord, I pray for the situation that's happening in Israel and Gaza and just uh, the conflict there. God, we know that you are a God of peace. And Lord, we know that you're a God of justice. And so God, we pray uh, specifically those two things. God, we pray your peace to come, your, your wholeness, Lord. Um, and Lord, we also pray that your justice would come to right what is wrong. Lord, we look to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, we're continuing through our study. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've had fall break and we've uh, really dove into chapter 3 the last couple of weeks. So if you've missed the last few weeks, I encourage you uh, to go back, watch those two sermons online because uh, it really is just an important understanding of what Paul's doing here in Galatians chapter 3. And uh, I told you two weeks ago that in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we were really jumping into the deep end of the pool, if you you will, uh, in Scripture and, and looking at some weighty things, some things that um, are complex and, and difficult to understand. And so we're, we're working through it. We're doing the best we can. And uh, last week, we talked about blessing and curse, blessing and curse, and that all throughout Scripture, we see this uh, contrast between the two. And, and Paul really gets into that last week uh, in the text. But to introduce it, uh, we played a game last week. So if you missed it, sorry, you missed the game. But we played this or that. And in the game, uh, the, there were several things I would mention, and you'd have to pick and choose between different things. One of which I said was pumpkin spice before October 1st, or pumpkin spice after October 1st. You remember this, right? And many of you said after October 1st, but some of you said before October 1st, and I told you you were both wrong. All things pumpkin spice are just revealed truth that the curse is indeed still around. Now, we're gonna have a little church family conference here in the middle of my sermon. 
Yesterday, about 10 o'clock, I arrived here in my office to get some stuff done, worked till about noon, left the church, came back about five o'clock last night for the father-daughter gala, which, by the way, was incredible. We have some very talented lip-singing dads in this church, okay? But besides that, between noon and five o'clock, this showed up. Pumpkin spice apple cider. This showed up. Pumpkin spice Werther's original. It's not original if you have to add pumpkin spice. Wrong. Now this is the worst of them all. As my... Administrative assistant Lane Hart said this morning, that is a waste of an Oreo. (laughs) Amen. Listen, people. This was an inside job. (laughs) These were stacked on my desk at 5 o'clock when I arrived last night. My door was locked. (laughs) So all the ones with keys in the church, I'm coming for you. I'm blaming all of you. Now, it's silly. I get it. But what wasn't silly is this. Show this picture. Not silly. Frosty? Are you kidding me? You're messing with Frosties now with pumpkin spice? It's like the curse. It's invading everything. So last week, we played this game, this or that. And then I asked, blessing or curse? And while this is silly and this is fun and this is to kind of whet our appetite, everyone wants blessing. That's what we discovered last week. Everyone wants blessing. No one would choose curse. Nobody really wants that. And this is what Paul introduces us to last week. That God's design is blessing. But the result of sin, the result of our finding blessing in our own way always leads to curse. Now, there's a lot to be be said about that, and so you have to go back and listen to the message last week, but here's what I want to draw from this morning. Our only hope is that we can be set free from the curse and experience blessing. The answer is found for our being set free from the curse in verse 13 of Galatians 3, where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This morning, I've titled my sermon, The Path to Freedom. The Path to freedom. You see, when we are under the curse, we are no longer free. When God created in Genesis 1, we see the blessing and the freedom that comes in blessing. But in Genesis 3, as we looked last week, when the curse arrives, all of a sudden there's captivity. And so this morning, this idea of the path to freedom. Now, you're in this room and you as an American citizen, understand that we 
in this country, we live in a free country, and we are very grateful for that. When we talk about this idea of freedom, we understand freedom. We've never been taken hostage, as many people are in this very moment, captive. I've never been imprisoned. I've never been behind bars. I've never been in chains, as many in history have experienced. So when we talk about freedom, we understand a bit about freedom. We don't understand very well what it means to be imprisoned. But here's what I would say to us this morning, that here in America, while many of us are never going to or have never experienced imprisonment behind bars or in chains, there are many who experience captivity and imprisonment with something that isn't bars and chains. In fact, there may be even some of you in this room who are free but yet feel like you're a captive. When God created, he created in such a way for us to experience blessing, and blessing is freedom. So this pathway to freedom, you see, we can be held captive by the bondage of sin. We can be held captive by the strain of worry. We can be held captive by the struggle of being good enough. We can be held captive by the chains of addiction, by the pressure of keeping up and the fear of the future and many other things. But you see, God does not want you, does not want us, does not want mankind to remain captive. So what is this path to freedom? In this next section in Galatians 3, you're going to see three things, three, three themes. The promise, the law, and then Christ. The promise, the law, and then Christ. And this is the path to freedom. What do I mean by this? Historically, if you look back at Scripture, this is what you will find. You will find that the blessing comes in creation. He gives order as we discussed. And then in chapter 3, chaos arrives and the curse comes because man chooses God's way instead of, or man's way instead of God's way. And then chapter 3 through 11, we see the result of the curse. It's chaos. It's disorder. It's brokenness. It's destruction. It's captivity. But then in Genesis chapter 12, we see a promise arrive. A promise to a man named Abram. And then from there for another 430 years, there is a resting in this promise. And then comes the law. The people of Israel, God is forming his people and he gives them the law. And then for however many years after that, the law is in place and then comes Christ. And so Paul addresses this, he walks us through this, and it's the path to discover freedom. So we're going to look at verses 15 through the rest, uh, through verse 26. We're going to take it in chunks. So if you're taking notes, I know many of you like to do that, the first thing that we need to understand is the nature of the promise. We need to understand the nature of the promise. Look with me, beginning in verse 15. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, 
referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What do we see in these verses? We see this word promise repeated over and over and over again. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. To fully understand this idea of promise, we have to understand and recognize that it is connected to the blessing that is given to Abraham that we studied last week. If you notice in verse 14, which we didn't read, we finished last week, it says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There is a correlation and a connection between the blessing that was given to Abraham that is ours also in Christ Jesus and this idea of promise. The blessing of Abraham is God's plan, as we talked about last week, to reverse the curse. We see this in Genesis chapter 12. 3 through 11, it's curse. It's the result of the curse. Everything is falling apart. Everything's broken. Genesis 12, God speaks blessing for the first time since the creation account. He is beginning the process of reversing the curse. So then, blessing results in freedom. If the curse results in captivity, blessing results in freedom. So what is Paul teaching us in these verses? The blessing is a promise, and the promise is an inheritance, an inheritance to freedom. Look down at verse 18. It says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God, what, gave it to Abraham by a promise, this idea of inheritance it comes through promise. Now, you and I have a hard time understanding the reality of promise. What do I mean by that? Those of you who are parents in the room, you have children, have your children ever looked at you and said, Mom, Dad, I promise. And you're laughing because you know they've said that, and you also know that many times they did not do what they promised. But church, let's not give the kids a hard time this morning, those of us who are adults in the room. Hasn't there been times in your life when you said, I promise, and yet didn't hold up your end of the bargain? See, we live in a world of broken promises. We hear someone promise something, but yet we doubt the reality of that promise. We say, yeah, right, or sure, he will, or sure, she will. We're accustomed to being heartbroken. We're accustomed to being disappointed. We're accustomed to all of these things. Why? Because we're accustomed to broken promises. But this is why we have to understand the nature of the promise that Paul is talking about here in Scripture. You see, the nature of this promise is different. Why? Because a promise made by man is always different than a promise made by God. When God makes a promise, it's different. It's different. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, it says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, we see that language there, 
the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen, church, our hope in freedom is not rooted in anything other than the unchanging God to which he gives the freedom. He is the one who cannot lie. It is unchangeable. His character is that. It is guaranteed. Paul helps us understand the reality of this promise, the nature of this promise, that it's unchanging. In verse 15, he gives a human example. He says that even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. What he's talking about, if you have the CSB translation, um, the, the, the translator puts a human will in there. This idea of human covenant or human will is something that many of us fully understand. Many of you have written a human will. You've written out a legal document and it's been ratified, it's been signed, it is secure, it is set that if something were to happen to you, this is what happens to all of your stuff. This is what you want to happen. This is your will. It's a legal document. The point of this legal document is that regardless of the conditions around the will, the will never changed. Regardless of what changes in the circumstances of the family, of the setting, or any of those things, the will is set. It's secure. And Paul's using this as an example to show that indeed, that regardless of the circumstances around the promise, the promise is true. Why does he say that? Because if you notice verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. This is where Paul's getting at. He's got these Judaizers showing up on the scene saying, yeah, sure, God promised this to Abraham, but you know what came after the promise? The law came after the promise, which means the law's most recent, so you need to do the law. This is why they're harping on circumcision. They're harping on all these things, these things that you must do. If you want to be in the, the, the blessing, you want to experience the promise of God, you want to experience all of these things, then you need to follow the law. And so Paul shows up on the scene here and he says, hold on. Just because the law came, it doesn't annul the promise. The promise still stands. The promise is the foundation of it all. And so Paul says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. In other words, you can have one or the other. It can't be law and it, or it can't be promise. It's one or the other. It's only one can be true. And so to fully understand the nature of this promise, we have to understand how God gave this promise. Over in Genesis chapter 15, we've been there numerous times over the last couple of weeks, but in verses 1 through 7, we see that God makes this promise. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram says, well, look, God, I understand you've made this promise to me, but I don't have a son. All I've got is Eleazar of Damascus, who's in my household as a servant, and Abram says, you've given me no offspring to be my heir. And God says, you don't worry about that. He says, look up to the sky. 
Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6 is the powerful verse that we've looked at. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith comes through righteousness. So this is this, is this foundation. But then in verse 7, God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of your uh, from Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, he restates the promise of the land. And then verse 8, listen to how Abraham responds. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Is this not a question that we ask all the time in our lives? God, you said this, but how am I to know for sure that it's going to come about? How do I know that I can trust you? How do I know that I can believe you? How, you, you say that I'm gonna have this land, how do I know that I'm gonna have this? And so God does something remarkable. Verse nine, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now that's an answer, isn't it? How am I supposed to know this is true? Bring me some animals. Abram, who's still named Abram at this time, understood what God was about to do. You see, in that time, a covenant or an agreement between two people was done like this. They would take animals, as mentioned in the verse, and they would be cut in half, and they would take one half of the animal and put it here, the other half here, then the next animal, half of it here, the other half here, and essentially they'd make a pathway with the animals cut in two on each side of the path. And so this is what Abram does. He cuts the animals. He sets them apart. And the next thing would happen in this covenant agreement between two parties during this time is that the two parties would start at one end of that path and they would walk together through this path with the animals cut on either side of them. Can you imagine the gore of that? The smell and the reality of what you were doing? The reason they would do that, though, was symbolic to show this. We're entering into this agreement together, you and I. And if one of us breaks this agreement, what has been done to these animals should be done to the person who breaks the agreement. This is the picture of how they made covenants in the Old Testament time period. Can you imagine showing up to sign your mortgage of your house? And the, Lord, the mortgage lender and the title company and the realtor were all there together. They say, all right, before we sign all the papers, we're going out back. Right? This is the picture of how agreements were made. So Abram knew. He knew exactly what we're doing. Okay, God's, we're about to enter into this agreement. This is going to be set. But this is where things get a little bit different. You see, it says in verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then beginning in verse 13, all the way through verse 16, God shows up and he starts speaking what's going to happen. This is going to happen, and I promise that this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to be bad. You're going to be in captivity for a little bit, but I'm going to send a... We're going to... This is how it's going down. 
And then we come to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, these animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. Here's my question. What was Abram doing during this covenant-making process? He was sleeping. He was sleeping. This is abnormal. The norm is that Abraham and God walk through this, but in God's way of doing things, the nature of his promises is that he puts you to sleep and he says, watch what I'm going to promise and watch what I'm going to do. The promise that Paul is talking about, this blessing, this freedom that comes in Christ that is ours the blessing of Abraham, we looked last week, is for those who are in Christ. It comes through a promise, and the nature of this promise is different. It depended nothing upon man. It depended nothing upon Abraham. It had everything to do with God and what he was going to do. And so this is the promise that we have in Christ Jesus. So here's what this means for us. Listen, church, we are either resting in the promise that results in freedom, or we are exhausted from the performance that results in captivity. We are resting in the promise that results in freedom, or we are exhausted from the performance that results in captivity. There's no in-between. It's either promise or performance. You can't have both. There are many people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and then they're trying to earn God's approval through performance. They're not resting in the law and finding freedom in the law or in the promise. There are many who are trying to earn their way to salvation. I had a conversation with someone this morning, and I said, if you were to die today, if something tragic were to happen in your life, do you know for sure that you'd be with God in heaven? I don't know is the answer. See, when we're resting in our own performance to find ourselves in heaven, the answer is always, I don't know. Because you never know how good enough is good enough. But when you're resting in the promise, all of a sudden you understand that your ability to enter into the throne room of God and bow before him to run into it, as we sang about a few minutes ago, the ability to do that has everything to do with the promise. And in resting in the promise, there is freedom. There is freedom. And so that leads us, though, to the logical question that Paul asked in verse 19. Why then the law? If the law came 430 years after the promise, you understand the logic of what's happening. Well, fine then. If, if it's promise only, then forget the law. Let's get rid of the law. Several weeks ago, I introduced you to a word named or called antinomianism, which is a heresy that plagued the church, which said, just get rid of the law. We don't need the law. In fact, there is a prominent pastor in America today who is saying that we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. That is a heresy. That is false. Paul himself says in Romans 7, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul sees the law as holy, righteous, and good. So why the law? Read with me verses 19 through 22. Paul says, why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul asks, what's the reason for the law? If we understand the nature of the promise, we need to understand the reason for the law. Why did God give us the law? Now, this is important for us to understand. There are some people who look at the law and say it's bad. And there are some people who look at the law and say it was good. Here's my way of illustrating it. This is a saw. I need a volunteer. Just kidding. All right, just kidding. That would be bad. This is a handsaw. This handsaw is very good at cutting boards. You understand this? But this handsaw is very bad at cutting beards. You understand this, right? It's good for what it was created for. What Paul is saying when he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous is good, is he's saying... When understood the proper design and the purpose for which the law was given, it indeed is good. The problem with the law is not the law itself. The problem was the use of the law and what people were using it for. The Judaizers were showing up saying, the law is your way to earning favor with God. It's your way to be justified. It's your way to stand righteous before God. It's your way to be okay in the throne room of God. That's not the purpose of the law. Indeed, it is like you trying to cut your beard with a saw that's designed to cut a board. And so it brings the question, what is the purpose? Why the law? Let me give you a few things. The first one is this. Why the law? The law was added because of sin. Verse 19 teaches us this. Why then the law was added because of transgressions? Listen, the law gave order, it gave boundaries, it gave moral clarity. There is no civilization without law. You understand this. This is why in your home you have rules for your household. This is why there are speed limits in our community. This is why there are laws, because without laws there would be utter chaos. And so if you think about this, think about the progression, right? There's blessing, then there's curse because of rebellion. And the result of curse is murder and it's jealousy and it's adultery. It's all of these things. And then God shows up on the scene and says, I'm going to form my people. I'm going to bring about my people and they're going to be a nation. They're going to be a great nation. And all the nations are going to look at them and say, man, these people are blessed. Well, how are they going to function as a nation? They need law. They need order. They need moral clarity. So the law was given for this. The people were sinful and there needed to be clarity. Second we see is that the law was temporary. Look at verse 19. When, why then the law is added because of transgress, transgressions? Until the offspring. There are three times that it talks about the law in this verse and then it says until. In other words, the law was given until something was to come. Until it was 
temporary. Third, the law could not offer life. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, what Paul's saying is the law can't offer life. It's impossible. So it can't offer life. So what does the law do? What's the purpose? What's the purpose? Let me give you two things. The first one is this. The law reveals the character of God that he is holy. The law reveals the character of God that he is holy. Now, understand this. When God gave the law to his people, he was forming for himself his own people, right, to experience his blessing. They were to be his people. Now, the problem is, is they didn't fully have a picture of who he is, right? And so to help them understand who he is, he gives them the law to help them understand his character and that he's holy. They, they had no understanding of what holiness was outside of the law. No understanding of holiness, no understanding of who God is. And so God gives them the law to reveal his character. But secondly, the law exposes the extent of our sinfulness. The law exposes the extent of our sinfulness, and that is that we are indeed imprisoned that we are imprisoned to it. Over in Romans chapter three, verse 23, we know that it says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A few verses before that in verse 20, it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, what? Comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. But here's where I think we miss it. Every person in this room, every person probably in our city, in fact, I would argue that most every person on the planet would say, yes, indeed, there is something inside of me that's sinful. I do bad things. I think we all agree with that. But what I think we miss out on is understanding the extent and the reality of what that means. The scripture says it means that we are imprisoned. Look at verse 22. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everyone, excuse me, imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. Sinfulness imprisons us. Sinfulness imprisons us. However, we don't know that we are in prison until the law reveals that we are in prison. Does that make sense? This is what it does. John Stott said it this way. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. The law reveals how helpless we are. And in our helplessness, all of a sudden, we come to grips with the reality that we are indeed in prison. See, listen, church, we can be imprisoned without being behind bars. And the great danger of the enemy is this, is to take a man or a woman who is indeed in prison and make them think that they are on the beach. Let me say that again. 
There are many people who are actually imprisoned to sin, but yet they think they're out on the beach enjoying a beautiful, sunny day. This is the deception that enemy Satan does. This is why God gave us the law. You have the Israelites, man, this is a great thing. Look at us, look at life. All of a sudden, the law comes before them, and all of a sudden, they see the reality. Wait, we're not on the beach anymore. We're actually in prison, helpless to save ourselves. But remember, the law was temporary, and remember, this is the path to freedom. You have the promise, then you have the law to show the need, and then all of a sudden, you have the Savior, the freedom that is found in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that what? We might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, listen, we are no longer under a guardian, which means this, we have been set free. We've been set free in Christ. If we remember the law is temporary until the offspring should come, who is the offspring? He's already told us, if you look back at verse, uh, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So when Christ shows up, all of a sudden things are different. He comes and satisfies the law for us. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now verse four, listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's the result? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So watch this, listen. Jesus Christ is the offspring of the promise, which means this, that the nature of the promise is not just a promise like, yeah, this is going to happen. There's actually one coming who could fulfill the promise. And how does he come? He comes in the form of mankind, and he fulfills the law that can't give life to man. He does it for us. He fulfills, what does it say? The righteous requirement of the law. And so how do we stand right before God? Notice what it says. Verse 26. Excuse me. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all now sons of God. In Christ, meaning this, when there is a union between you and Christ Jesus through faith. Because Jesus has met the righteous requirement of the law, it is now met inside of you because Christ has done it for you. And in this, there's freedom. In this, there is freedom. On Tuesday night this week, my family and I, my mother-in-law, we went out on the lake for uh, it was one of the last warm days, according to the weatherman. And we wanted to go out and enjoy a dinner out on the lake. And so we went to Sam's on the water restaurant. 
It was a little bit colder than we thought it was going to be. We go eat, and we get back in the boat, and leave the dock. It's a little after 6 o'clock. The sun is down below the trees, so it's getting dusk. Not quite dark yet, but close. And because it was freezing cold, and everyone's wrapped up in blankets, we're going real slow. My daughter's like, can I drive? I was like, sure, we're going slow. There's literally nobody on the lake, so you can't hit anything. Just keep it between the trees, right? So I'm sitting in the back, and I just glance up to just make sure everything's good. And I notice in the distance there is actually a boat sitting out in the water. And so I go up and say, hey, Avery, turn to the right a little bit so they don't think that we're going to just run into them. And as I look, I notice that on the bow of the boat, the front of the boat, there's somebody standing. And it's dark. It's getting dark. I can barely see it. Somebody's standing there like this. And I think, uh uh-oh. So I get Avery up, and we go over, and I pull up next to the boat, and I asked them, you don't want to spend the night out here, do you? And they said, no. Here's my question. Why do you think they were standing on the front of the boat waving their hands? Because they came to the realization that their boat was no longer working, and that their phones had died, and the sun was below the trees, and within just a few minutes, it was going to be pitch dark, and they came to the realization that we are going to be stranded out here all night long, unless someone rescues us, unless someone rescues us. They understood their predicament. So we tie a rope to the front of their boat, and we take about a 30 to 45 minute drive in the pitch black down the lake to a dock so that they can stand on solid ground. Listen, church, can you imagine them being out on the lake and thinking, man, what a wonderful night for us to just enjoy being out here on this peaceful lake. It wasn't until they became aware of their predicament that they need a Savior. They didn't understand it until they saw the need. This is what the law does for us. The Savior has come. Can I tell you how much they said thank you to me when they finally got on that dock? You see, when we understand the predicament and we understand the salvation, we understand the gratefulness for what we've experienced. John Stott later says it this way. He says, no man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the dark blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Church, can we just say it real clearly this morning? There are some of you who are sitting on the boat of life thinking that you're not captive. That you're free. 
but the boat's not working. The phones are dead. And God has given us the law, he's given us the spirit, and he's given us the church, and he's given us his word to reveal to us that we are indeed held captive. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would indeed see the predicament of what life is outside of Christ. And that you would stand on the bow of your boat called life, waving your arms, not to me, not to you conjuring up the ability to do better, but that you would wave your arms to Jesus, who's the offspring of the promise that is guaranteed that you can be set free from the curse of sin and experience the blessing of the inheritance of eternal life. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that your promise is firm, that it is secure. God, we thank you that you gave us the law that is holy, that is righteous, that is good, to reveal in us how desperately we need a Savior. But God, thank you for not leaving us desperate. Thank you for not leaving us in prison. Thank you for coming and fulfilling the law and accomplishing the law through Jesus Christ, who came in the form of flesh and was perfect, but yet still was condemned and died on our behalf. As Paul says, Christ became a curse for us to set us free from the curse. So God, we look to you this morning in gratitude and utter joy that we stand on solid ground. God, I pray for the person in this room, though, who knows in their heart and in their soul that they are indeed imprisoned to sin. Lord, I pray that you would set them free this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.